There is absolutely no reason to ever be anxious about anything because our Heavenly Father knows what we need and He is able to provide everything that we need. And not only is He able to provide, He takes great joy in providing everything that we need. they are. So we just finished two weeks of looking at this most heinous, most sinful feast, the feast of Herod that he threw for himself on his birthday. The decadent, most immoral uh, happenings that we have seen so far in the Gospel of Mark. We looked at Herodias. We looked at Herod. We looked at this poor young girl who has herself a fallen sinner, been further corrupted by her mother and has now just acted so shamefully and so calloused in heart. And we have mourned the sinfulness that this story has shown to us, but we have rejoiced that this story was not a tragedy. It was a tragedy for the young girl. It was a tragedy for Herodias, but it was no, no story of a tragedy, was it? It was a story of a triumph because the moment John's head was separated from his body, his reward began. So we looked at that feast. But now we go from that feast to another feast, from that banquet to another banquet, and the two banquets could not be more different from one another. We go from the most sinful, immoral banquet to a banquet that's put on by the Lord Himself. We go from a banquet that's taking place in the palace halls, the most luxurious palace of the land, to a banquet that's taking place in a deserted countryside. We go from a banquet that no doubt had the finest foods that Israel had to offer being served to now a banquet of supernatural food, but supernatural food that is bread and fish. And we grow from a banquet that is blasphemous and insulting to the name of the Lord to a banquet that is by the bread of life Himself, one that is honoring and glorifying. We go from, of course, the banquet in Herod's palace to now the banquet in the countryside, but we're not there yet. We've got to get there today. So in our story that we'll begin today, we'll look at the first four verses, and that'll be all we can handle today. But as we begin the story today, I'm going to begin introducing to you or pointing out to you, I should say, a number of motifs. Motifs is going to be the word for the week and the word for next week, too, Uh, just because I like that word. Motifs just speaks of a theme or just a common occurrence, a mantra, so to speak. And there are probably more motifs in this story than any other single story in the Gospel of Mark. There are more themes, more threads connecting together this particular story with Old Testament threads than probably any other single story in the Gospel of Mark. We'll point some of those out as we go this morning. Next week, those themes or those motifs will get much more important and much more visible. We're going to see themes like the Exodus theme, the the theme of God taking His people out from slavery of, of Egypt into where? The desert, where they need to be fed. We're going to see themes of the the shepherd of God, or God as the shepherd, God as shepherd. We're going to see the themes of God's provision in the desert and about half a dozen more Old Testament themes that are carried over into this story because this is one of the most powerful stories of the Gospel of Mark. So we begin this morning, we'll begin just by reading the story together. We're very familiar with the story, all of us. And we'll just read it, first of all, from verse 30 down through verse 44. And then we'll just jump right in from verse 30. So from verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to, to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, have many, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So each passage of Scripture that we come to, we have learned to ask ourselves this question, among other questions. We've learned to ask ourselves the question, why did the Holy Spirit put this here? For we know that all of the miracles, all the teachings and all the parables of Jesus, all the instances of Jesus' life are not in the Scriptures. We know that if all the instances of Jesus, even his adult ministry were in the scriptures, that we would need Bibles that were far thicker than what we have. Even John himself, as he finishes his gospel at the end of chapter 21, he says, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and, and taught and did, then I suppose it would fill the whole world with all these things, which of course makes sense to us because Jesus being God, the Son, had no beginning. And so the things that Jesus knows and has done, there is literally no end to the things that he has done. So it would literally fill the world because he created the world and then much more. So the world wouldn't even contain it. But even just the things of Jesus's life, the majority of them are not written in our scriptures. And so we should always ask ourselves the question, why is this particular episode here? So this is an episode, of course, of one of Jesus's most famous miracles, the multiplying of the bread and of the fish. And we've talked many times, particularly recently, about the purpose of the mighty works and signs that Jesus did, the purpose of the miracles. We've talked many times recently about the purpose of the miracles and the purpose of the miracles we have understood plainly to be an affirmation, a validation of the message and the messenger. That's what the miracles were performed for. Jesus never performed any miracles to draw attention to himself, to bring favor upon himself. Jesus performed his mighty signs and works by the power of the Spirit in order to validate both the message and the messenger. And the same thing applies to all the miraculous activity of the apostles. It was always done to validate the message and the messenger. Now, this validation of the, the validation of the message and the messenger, these, this validation meant something different or something more, substantially more to the original readers of the Gospels and to the, the eyewitnesses of the Gospels than it means to us. It means more to them because we don't require the same validation. We have a validation of our own. Does anybody want to guess what the validation of the Scriptures is for us? It's a very significant validation. Anybody want to take a stab at it? 
Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the validator of the Scriptures for us because when Holy Spirit dwells in us, Holy Spirit who wrote the Scriptures testifies to our heart, this is true. And so the miracle stories can also serve serve as a type of secondary validation for us, but in a different way because we weren't eyewitnesses, but nevertheless we have the believable testimony of the Gospels that testifies to the miraculous activity of Jesus and the apostles. We know that it's accurate. We know that it's reliable. Because, for example, as we're studying through Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel was written very early. And so Mark writes these accounts of this miraculous activity of Jesus at a time when most of the people who were alive when those activities took place are still alive. And these gospels are circulated around in such a way that anybody could say, no, 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 I was there and it didn't happen like that. I saw that, and and no, that's not exactly what happened. But, of course, that didn't take place. So even for us reading these accounts today, removed by some two millennia, they can still be a validation of sorts for us. Nevertheless, our biggest validation, our most reliable validation, is, of course, Holy Spirit, who communicates to our souls, this is truth, this is right. So for us, the miracle stories serve a little bit of a different function. For us, the function that the miracle stories serve is to show us something of the character, something of the nature of God. It shows us something about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God incarnate. And so the question that we should ask, why did Holy Spirit choose to put this miracle in the Scriptures and not some of the others? And so the most obvious reason is going to be, what does this miracle show us about the character of Jesus or the nature of Jesus? And it's going to show us some things, some very plain and very upfront and easy to see things. It's going to show us some things like, for example, we'll talk about this today, the compassion of Jesus, the supernatural, fathomless compassion of Jesus. Jesus in the story, I'll show us in the text how Jesus feels the weariness of the people. He feels the poverty. He feels the hunger. This is not something arbitrary. This is not something theoretical for Jesus. This is not just something in which Jesus, the human, draws on the supernatural power that's the Son of God and somehow He's made aware of the weariness. Instead, He feels their difficulty. Also, we're going to see in the text how Jesus feels their lostness. So we're going, to, we're going to see something very powerful about the compassion of Jesus. This is also going to teach us something very important about the priority that Jesus places on the teaching and the preaching of the Word. We have made note of that since chapter 1, that Jesus' main reason for coming, of course, is to die, to make atonement. But up until the point of His death, His main purpose was to teach, was to preach. It wasn't to cast out demons or cleanse lepers or, or perform miracles. His main priority was to preach. And so we're going to see very plainly the priority that he places on the preaching of the word. We're also going to see something about Jesus's methods of ministry and how he's going to draw the disciples in to ministry with him. We're also going to see very plainly Jesus's power to do anything. Jesus's power to create anything from nothing. And we're going to see that Jesus will use that power to show us his absolute unwavering commitment to be our provider. Jesus is most interested in being our provider. And so he's going to use this supernatural power that he is endowed with by the Spirit that indwells him perfectly. He's going to draw upon that and use that in order to be seen as our great provider. But then perhaps the main 
takeaway of the story, the part of the story that is impossible to miss, and the part of the story that is probably most beneficial for us to see is just simply this. This story says to the believer, to the child of Christ, there is absolutely no reason to ever be anxious about anything because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And He is able to provide everything that we need. And not only is He able to provide, He takes great joy in providing everything that we need. And so there is never cause for the child of God to ever worry or to be anxious about anything. Those things are going to come through plain and clear this week and next week. So now let's just get started from verse 30 and we'll begin drawing some of these truths out. From verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And so we notice the context that this takes place in. It takes place in the context of the right immediately after yet another one of Mark's bracketing techniques, his sandwiching techniques, where he loves to take a story, begin telling a story, interrupt it with another story, and then come back and finish the first story. And we've seen each time that he's done this, that he does this for a purpose. And his purpose is that the meaning of both stories emphasizes or illumines the meaning of the other story so that the meaning of both stories are found in one another. And so he's taken this story of the sending out of the twelve and put it together with the story of the beheading of John the baptizer, which took place earlier in time. And he sandwiched these two together because he wants us to see something about the cost of discipleship. These twelve who are sent out, they will ultimately share in the cost of discipleship, which John the Baptist uh, receives now as his head is separated from his body. Later, the disciples will also experience the similar type of the cost of discipleship. And all of that is, of course, pointing to the great prophet. The, the twelve apostles are prophets of a sort of themselves. They are the voice, the voice of God, the, the spokesman of God. They're sent out with the message of Jesus. So they are, in a sense, prophets of God. But then John the baptizer is said to be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But all of that points to the prophet, Christ, who is the prophet of prophets. And then his destiny will be the same or similar as the baptizer. They will both be executed in demeaning, humiliating physical ways. But then also this points to the cost of discipleship for the apostles as well. Now that story concluded here in verse 30 with the words that they returned to Jesus and told Jesus all the things that they had said and all the things that they had taught. So they'd return with this excitement and they share with Jesus their experiences of being sent out. Now verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So Jesus reveals here a motive, or Mark actually reveals the motive for them going away for this period of rest. And the motive he's going to tell us is that they've been just so swamped busy. They've not even had time to eat, not even the leisure, leisure to eat. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But that's the, the apparent motive, the apparent occasion for wanting to get away. But Matthew reveals for us another motive for Jesus' desire to get away for a period of rest. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 14 that it's at this time that Jesus learned of the death of John the baptizer, his cousin John the baptizer. So the death of John the baptizer, as we've said before, took place chronologically much earlier in the story. Perhaps this is the point at which Jesus learns it that coincides with the return of the apostles. Now, why might Jesus have learned it with the return of the apostles? That's not too hard to sort of put two and two together. Is perhaps the apostles have heard of it while they were sent out to these other villages and other towns, and they've brought the news back to Jesus. So hearing this most sad news 
Jesus wants to withdraw Himself to a place of desolation, to be alone with His thoughts, to be alone with His Father in prayer. And He couples that together with the occasion of wanting to provide some rest for the disciples. But the disciples come back with these fantastic stories of the demons that they've cast out, of the people that they've healed, of the message that they have preached, and the people that have listened to that message while others have rejected it. And in their excitement, Jesus serves for us as the perfect picture of the one who rejoices with the one who rejoices and weeps with the one who weeps. So Jesus' heart is weeping over the loss of John the baptizer. Nevertheless, in his joy and in his enthusiasm for the return of the disciples, he says to them, you know, you've got to be worn out. Let's leave this place. Let's go to a desolate, desolate place and rest a while. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So that's a command that he gives to them. It's in the imperative, come away. He's giving them a command, a directive for them to do. But notice in the authority of his command, coupled together, wedded together with his authoritative command is an equal concern and an equal care for the disciples. He commands them and his command is for their good, which should come as absolutely no surprise to us because every command of the Lord is precisely the same. Every command of the Lord is the authoritative command of God that's coupled together perfectly with His desire for our best, specifically our eternal best. So He gives them this authoritative command, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So here we begin to see what I'll point out is the first motif. And that's the motif of God's provision, of God's desire to provide both food and rest in a desert place. And if you think for just a few moments, we won't trace this through the Old Testament because we don't need to. You can, for yourselves, you can recollect so many many stories and instances in which there is an occasion in the desert, in the wilderness, and God's people are seeking either rest or food or both. And then God either provides that or for some reason refrains from providing that or doesn't provide that. So many instances that that occurs Throughout the stories of our scriptures, we can think, of course, the main one of the Hebrew children in their time in the wilderness as God commands Pharaoh, let let my people go. And then we go through the plagues and we cross the Red Sea and everything. And then we get to the desert and coming to the desert, Moses says, how am I going to feed these people? And then, of course, there comes the manna, there comes the quail, there comes the water from the rock. And so that's probably the biggest, the grandest story of God's desire to provide rest and food for His people in the wilderness. But we see so many minor stories that carry the same theme. The story of Elijah. If you remember the story of Elijah after the incident on Mount Carmel when he flees and he's in the same desert and there God provides for him food and rest only He does it directly from the hand of the second person of the Trinity, the the second person of the Godhead. We see the same theme in the lives of Abraham as Abraham is commanded to leave the land of Ur and go to this land of promise, but all he ever really dwells in is this desert place, this desert place in which God desires to be His provider, but then there comes the famine. And in Abraham's sin, he fails to trust God and he flees to Egypt. We see it in the story of Ruth as uh, as uh, Naomi flees the land of bread, Bethlehem, and goes to the land of the Moabites to flee from the, the famine. And so many others. There's, a, there's at least half a dozen other storylines in our Old Testament in which the theme of the story is the theme of God's people in the wilderness. God sends them into the wilderness 
or calls them into the wilderness. And in that wilderness experience, there is this desire for God to provide food for them and for God to provide rest for them. Sometimes the food and rest are provided. Sometimes due to the sinfulness or the hard-heartedness of the people, it is not provided. But we see this many instances. For example, Psalm 95, He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah when your fathers put me to the test and and put me to the proof though they had not seen my they had seen my work they are a people who go astray in the heart and they have known my ways therefore i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest now the writer to the hebrews picks up on that and he takes over a chapter from chapter 3 through halfway through chapter 4 to draw out that theme of god's people failed to trust him in the wilderness and so therefore they did not enter the rest and so you are to not be like that. You are to trust where they fail to trust. Isaiah 63, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you lead, led your people to make yourself for yourself a glorious name. Or Jeremiah 31 and verse 2. Therefore, says the Lord, the people who survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And we could go on and on. The Lord wants to be seen as the provider of food and rest, particularly in the desert. So we're going to begin making some connections there, the wilderness, the desolate place, and God's desire to be the rest provider and the food provider in that. <music>